want it to be something where it's like, well, these two old guys, like we just have to pick between one of them. Like, why do we have to pick? What do younger rural voters in a key state make of their likely choices in 2024? For Sunday, July 16th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Ahead of the release of a big, buzzy Barbie movie, we dig into the early days of the iconic doll and what's going on under the plastic surface. I think these dolls have incredibly trendy clothes, but an underlying mythic resonance. And in this week's Enlighten Me, we hear how a key figure in the world of mindfulness went from broadcast news to Buddhism. When you wake up from distraction, you're seeing how wild your mind is. And then when you get familiar with the chaos of the mind, well, then it doesn't own you as much. That's mindfulness. All of those stories after these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. A sudden torrent of rain in Bucks County, Pennsylvania last night left five people dead and two others missing. Vehicles were swept away there as many parts of the Northeast contended with flash flood warnings that's disrupted travel. Several inches of rain fell within 45 minutes in the Pennsylvania township of Washington Crossing, north of Philadelphia. A flood watch remains in effect for much of Vermont through tonight after historic flood devastated the state last week. Vermont Public's Nina Keck reports heavy rains continue to swell many rivers in the state. Public safety officials are urging Vermonters to avoid driving on flooded roads, with low-lying areas near waterways particularly at risk. A landslide Friday night hit several homes in Ripton, Vermont. Thomas Callen lives in west-central Vermont, just feet from the Otter Creek. He says cleaning up the sludge and figuring out how to replace his furnace has been exhausting. And seeing the river rising again is tough. Just the overall kind of overwhelmed feeling from this has left me in in almost that anxiety-type state. Meteorologists expect one to two inches of rain Sunday, with the potential for more in some areas. For NPR News, I'm Nina Keck in Chittenden, Vermont. In the southwestern United States, a dangerous heat wave is setting in and is expected to last through the coming week. In Phoenix, Arizona, forecasters anticipate a new record for the most consecutive days at 110 degrees. Fifteen Italian cities are under heat advisories, including Rome hitting 95 yesterday, 96 today. Tourists like Beth Friedman from Canada are taking it in stride. We've got fans, we've got hats, and during the hot part of the day, we're going back to our hotel, and then we'll come out and see Trevi Fountain at nighttime. On Tuesday, Rome's expected to see temperatures as high as 107 degrees. Russian President Vladimir Putin says his country has a sufficient stockpile of cluster munitions to deploy in Ukraine. The warning comes in response to the Biden administration's decision to provide the controversial munitions to Kyiv. NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow. In an interview with state television, Putin said Russia, quote, reserved the right to take reciprocal action should cluster munitions be used against his forces. Kremlin leader said he regarded the use of cluster munitions a crime and insisted Russia had thus far refrained from using the weapon, a charge Ukraine and its allies have challenged. Putin's comments came as Ukraine received the first batch of cluster bombs from the U.S. this week. The White House has justified the decision, saying it buys Ukraine time amid a shortfall in weapons production. Cluster munitions are banned in over 100 countries on the grounds they kill indiscriminately and leave explosive pellets that remain on the battlefield long after the conflicts have ended. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. The extreme weather is dumping rain throughout the area. Boston and Cambridge are under a flash flood warning. It's in effect until 5.30 this afternoon. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noy says one to three inches of rain has fallen so far. The flood threat is not over yet. While we've had a little break in the action for some of us, the rain's going to fill back in and will fall steadily and heavily at times through the evening hours. It'll wrap up right around or just before midnight in most areas. So the flooding risk remains. Multiple flash flood warnings continue, though the tornado watch has now been allowed to expire. So there is a lower threat for any additional severe weather. And there are flight delays at Logan Airport because of thunderstorms in the New York City area. Boston flights into Newark are running almost two hours late. Boston departures to JFK Airport are delayed an average of four hours. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton says the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline 988 that launched a year ago is a success. Moulton says Massachusetts residents are accessing the assistance. 180 people in Massachusetts every single day who reach out to the hotline for help in a time of crisis. That just shows you how many lives this is affecting, how many families it's affecting, how many lives are being saved. Moulton introduced the National Suicide Hotline Designation Act that created the helpline. He says he's been focused on mental health after suffering post-traumatic stress from four combat tours in Iraq. Starting tomorrow morning, the MBTA will close the above-ground section of the B branch of the Green Line for two weeks, while workers replace nearly half a mile of tracks in Alston. The T will provide shuttle buses instead of trolleys. It's 5.05. The Red Sox are in the lead against the Cubs. It's 11-3, bottom of the eighth. And there are multiple reports that DeAndre Hopkins won't sign with the Patriots after all. After meeting with the team in June, instead, the free agent Hopkins signed a reported two-year, $26 million contract with the Tennessee Titans. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. The 2024 presidential election will likely be decided by a relative handful of voters in a handful of states. Gen Z has been turning out in record numbers in recent midterms. A lot of the conversation focuses on young voters in and around big cities. What young rural voters think really matters and could decide a race in a key state like North Carolina. For our Sunday cover story, I spoke to NPR's Elena Moore and Jimena Bustillo, who talked to some of those critical Gen Z voters in Raleigh. We went down to North Carolina and got together with a group of students from across the political spectrum and really got to know a lot about their hometowns and pick their brains on all sorts of issues that are important to them. Let's get to know them. My name is Reagan Bunch. I am from Hayesville, North Carolina, and I go to school at UNC Wilmington. I'm 20 years old. I'm Bryson Hyman from Indian Land, South Carolina, but I live in Lillington now. Just graduated from Campbell University, and I'm 22. My name is Trinity Locklear. I'm from Shannon, North Carolina, located in Robson County. I go to state. I'm a rising junior. I just turned 20 Sunday. I'm Kayla Tran. I go to UNC Chapel Hill, and I'm from Bath, North Carolina, and I am 19. My name's uh, Larry McCallum. I'm from Lumberton, North Carolina. I go to UNC Pembroke, and I'm 22. My name is AJ Jacobs. I'm 18, and I'm a rising sophomore at Rice University in Houston. And um, I'm from Pembroke, North Carolina, proud member of the Lumbee tribe. 
I, I love hearing from this collection of people because I feel like uh, almost entirely when the media talks about young voters, they're talking about young urban voters. Right. Young urban voters. And some of these students were really involved with like young Republicans, but others were just friends of friends of friends that we were able to find that are not super involved. And they all didn't agree on everything, but they did actually agree on a lot, including how people outside their communities just don't understand rural voters. This is a completely backward place, that there is no education, that people aren't involved in politics, and the ones that are are kind of crazy and don't have a mind. Um, no, there are normal people down here. We live life a little bit slower and we like stuff sweet, but we're not stupid. That was Bryson Hyman, a Republican, and he also noted that while the South is very rural, it's not the same everywhere. So there are still bigger cities and a, a bunch of different cultures. Another student was Larry McCallum, who votes Democrat, and he also thinks that Democrats just get rural communities wrong. I think that if Democrats can figure out a way to target a lot of the issues that are on a lot of rural voters' minds, namely the economy, and agriculture, I think that they would do themselves a, a big favor in elections. There was another Democrat, A.J. Jacobs, who had a very similar sentiment. He is a member of the Lumbee tribe. It's the largest tribe east of the Mississippi, and it is not federally recognized. They helped former President Obama win North Carolina in 2008, but then have generally voted for Trump since. Mm -hmm. I've seen the Republican Party do a lot more recently in the community, but I think for a long time, both parties just kind of, you know, ignored us and thrown us off. So we're already hearing from very different people here, but it seems like there is a real common thread of feeling frustrated that neither party particularly seems to care about uh, their part of the world or understand their part of the world. Is yeah. that fair? And they just want someone that can help make their hometowns the best. Yeah. And so eventually we did get to talking about the 2024 election. We are seeing the possibility of another Biden versus Trump. <laughs> Joke scare. <laughs> Let's talk about it. <laughs> Explain the giggles. Explain the giggles. Oh, goodness. I mean, not an uncommon reaction to her to a rematch. No, it's not. <laughs> what what particular it seemed like everybody knew each other had the same opinion on this and we're looking around the room in that moment. Yeah, kind of. It it was really funny to watch because we'd been asking young people this question for days. We had gone to a college campus um, in a nearby city. We had been just chatting with folks in the Raleigh-Durham area. And obviously, Scott, you know this from talking to voters, too. Biden's age comes up. And for a lot of these voters, those giggles were because of his age. Because of Biden specifically. Well, and Trump. Yeah. Biden is the oldest president ever. Uh, before he was the oldest president ever, Donald Trump was the oldest president exactly. ever. Exactly. So, I mean, the choice here is it's kind of slim when it comes to finding a fresh new face uh, that's a front runner. I mean, it's disappointing. You know, they're both old. I mean, they're that's, both that's old as dirt. And I mean, I understand, you know, Biden's an incumbent president, but he's 80. He, I mean, exactly. <laughs> So that was AJ, Kalen, Trinity, and that line really sticks yeah. out to me, old as dirt. And it's not surprising, according to NPR's latest polling, the president's approval with folks under 30 is just 38 percent, and that's the lowest of any age group. Nationally, this is a huge uh, challenge for the Biden campaign because right. they are banking on the fact that even if younger voters, even if Democratic voters are not enthusiastic about Joe Biden being president for four years, they will turn out and vote for him anyway because he's probably running against Donald Trump. So I'm curious what this collection of voters thought about Donald Trump. 
you know, they were not as hype as you might think. They have criticism about Trump. Mm -hmm. The only person that voters dislike more than Biden is Trump. A big portion of the Republican Party wants somebody sensible, wants somebody who can work across lines. That was Bryson again, and he said he would really prefer candidates like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. And I will say both of those candidates are much younger than Trump by a few decades even. And, you know, going back to what you said, for the Democrats, it's it's kind of a different ballgame because, yes, Biden is 80 and mm -hmm. he would be 82 when he entered his next term if he won. But there is no huge field of candidates for, yeah. for Democrats to choose. There's no younger candidate in their mid 40s and 50s for Democrats to even compare Biden to. At least Republicans at the moment theoretically have that option. Right, right. And we heard voters talk about that. Here's Larry McCallum again. Biden has been one of the most unenthusiastic candidates in American <laughs> history. I voted for him, but the Democratic Party needs to work on their <laughs> proposed candidates. And to others in the group, this idea of Biden-Trump isn't even where their head is at. They honestly cringe at the idea of choosing a party in itself. I don't want it to be something where it's like, well, these two old guys, like, we just have to pick between one of them. Like, why do we have to pick? Amanda, the people you're talking to here clearly are not loving their choices mm -hmm. or likely choices mm -hmm. for, for the next election. They're not lining up with Team Democrat and Team Republican on many different fronts, but we hear them talking a lot about actually caring about the issues, digging into the issues. What do these voters care about? So one of the top issues is the economy. So those traditional pocketbook issues like job availability and housing affordability. Here's Bryson again. Young people aren't wanting to come to rural areas. You know, they're going to college and they're graduating from med school. And it's really becoming hard to attract these younger or even older doctors to come to these rural areas. Fellow Republican Reagan Bunch is critical of Democrats and has taken issues with the Biden administration generally, tying the president's performance to growing challenges for rural communities. We're kind of in a pocket where, you know, if you do want that access to or need that access to like emergency uh, medical care, it can be a challenge. The students also noted a lack of infrastructure built in rural areas, but it's not just infrastructure, it's opportunity. There's just not a lot of industry. You either work for the school system or you're working in tourism or you're working low level, entry level jobs that will not lead to a full career. So for college students like myself who want to go back, it's really daunting to figure out how I'm going to do that. I feel like we have so many people telling us all the times that all politics is nationalized and issues are kind of secondary to just kind of uh, identity politics and trend lines. Sounds very much the opposite here. People want very specific things and feel like they're not getting them. But I want to get to one more big theme in politics right yeah. now, and that is social issues, particularly abortion in the wake of last year's Dobbs decision. We saw that play a huge role in the midterms, and it's clear that Democrats are hoping it'll play a huge role in the presidential election. I'm curious how that plays with this group of rural and and there's a pretty good mix of conservative voters in it. Yeah. And, you know, in the midterms, there was a tie between youth turnout and protecting abortion. Young people turned out partially because of abortion. So, yeah, we brought it up. And, you know, North Carolina, it's really a big topic for them right now because Republicans just ushered through a 12-week abortion ban. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of people are thinking about it. And we asked the group how they felt. Here's Larry. I'm definitely pro-choice. Obviously, the Democrats sort of embody that position. I do think that restricting access to abortion 
it's only going to serve to negatively impact mostly poor uh, women and women of color. And like you said, there were conservatives in this group, and they did disagree with what Larry said and some of the more Democratic-leaning voters. But there was one thing that I thought was interesting that conservatives and, you know, more people in the middle could get behind, and that was there isn't a lot of emphasis in politics on supporting children after they're born, supporting parents once they have kids. And that's something that conservative Reagan Bunch brought up. I'm pro-life. I, I would like to see heartbeat bills across the country. But I'd also like to see other legislation that would help make parenting more accessible. So clearly abortion, top of mind issue, Scott. And when I think young voters, the other major issue of the past decade is gun violence. We have seen it, unfortunately, affect many of their daily lives at school growing up in a world where you regularly drill what to do when there's a school shooter. We yeah. have seen it ignite political activism in many different ways. I assume you asked about that, too. I did. And... This was an issue that they chimed in on a lot. And one of the people who was pretty active in it was Trinity. And she she said at this point, gun violence is almost casual in their community. She actually lost her cousin last fall due to gun violence. He was shot in an altercation with another person in their county. I cannot stand seeing like people my age losing their lives to gun violence to other people their age. Like It's getting ridiculous. And Trinity told us that increasing safety and reducing crime are top issues for her. And like we've been saying, she is undecided and she doesn't know who she's going to vote for next year. But she did say definitively she plans to vote. And that was something that all six students could easily get behind and agree on. That was NPR's Elena Moore and Jimena Bustillo. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. The Red Sox are in the lead against the Cubs this afternoon. It's 11-3, bottom of the eighth. And there are multiple reports that DeAndre Hopkins won't sign with the Patriots after all, after meeting with the team in June. Instead, the free agent Hopkins signed a reported two-year, $26 million contract with the Tennessee Titans. This rain should taper off by midnight. Tomorrow, we wake up to gray skies, temperatures in the upper 80s. Want some new summer reads on us? Sign up for WBUR's Beach Books newsletter in the month of July, and you could win a $30 gift card to Beacon Hill Books. We're picking from our subscribers each week, so sign up for Beach Books at WBUR.org. Luis Chiavone with these headlines. Authorities in Pennsylvania now say five people have died and two remain missing after a sudden deluge of rain hit Bucks County. Vehicles were swept away as the water rose dramatically in less than an hour. A flood watch remains in effect for much of Vermont through tonight after historic flooding devastated the state last week. Heavy rains continue to swell many rivers in the state. In the southwestern U.S., a dangerous heat wave is setting in and is expected to last through the coming week. In Phoenix, Arizona, forecasters anticipate a new record for the most consecutive days at 110 degrees. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. She's a pilot. She's an astronaut. She's a doctor. She's Barbie. Since the 1950s, Mattel's iconic Barbie doll has been and done almost everything. What started as one doll turned into a universe of characters, movies, TV shows, and lunchboxes. And after all of that, Barbie seems to be having a distinct cultural moment right now with the much-anticipated Greta Gerwig movie. To join us now to talk about all things Barbie, including a frank discussion about the sexualized origins of the doll, we have M.G. Lord, who wrote the book Forever Barbie, the unauthorized biography of a real doll, and Antonia Sarahito, a host at LAS Studios. Together, they host the new podcast miniseries, L.A. Made, The Barbie Tapes. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, hi, Scott. The podcast is called The Barbie Tapes, and the tapes in question are MG, the the archival tapes of interviews you did with seemingly all of the major players at the creation of Barbie. You had this this, this trove of tapes for a long time, and, and in the very beginning of, of the first episode, uh, a- Antonio, you describe coming in and, and kind of, you know, digging them out of a safe like it was gold bullion or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it was also because, uh, you know, I, I hadn't touched them since 1993 or four, and I lost the key to the fireproof lockbox. So oh, man. It presented more of a challenge. And I like this idea of, like, introducing Barbie as, like, an ancient artifact that we're sort of get- gathering material around. Because um, even though Barbie has only been around for a little over 60 years, she's sort of been coded into our DNA um, and does feel like if an archaeologist 100 years from now were to unearth items from today, Barbie would help explain a lot of U.S. culture. Yeah, I, I think it's not just her trendy clothes, though. I mean, I've always thought of Barbie as a space-age recasting of a Stone Age fertility goddess, you know, a, a Neolithic fertility totem, <laughs> like those Venuses of Willendorf. Um, and she does have a lot, you know, I rest this argument on her on her itty-bitty arched feet or the relative lack of them because, you know, those those Venus figures were portable objects of veneration. And in order for them to stand up, they had to be shoved into the earth, which connected them with Mother Earth, the Chthonian or dark underworld source of their power. I think these dolls have... Incredibly trendy clothes, but an underlying mythic resonance. Can you tell me about, though, the actual origin story of Barbie, though? Because I knew none of the details until I listened to this podcast, and especially the connection to this, um, I don't even know how to describe it, this German doll, Lily, which which comes from a very (laughs) different background and had a very different target audience than Barbie did. Well, as pieces of sculpture, the Barbie doll and the Lily doll are almost indistinguishable, but they have very different invented personalities. Lily was based on a comic character in the Bildzeitung, kind of a downscale German uh, 
tabloid newspaper like the National Enquirer, and in every one of the single panel comics, it's kind of, it's an ongoing joke, and it all takes this form of like Lily, Lily taking money from jowly fat cats for sexual favors. The emblematic cartoon, I think, is one of Lily completely naked, holding up a newspaper, a tabloid, I think, to cover her naked body. And she's in the apartment of a female friend. And she says to the friend, we had a fight and he took back all his presents. That gives you a sense of how Lily operated in the world. Mm-hmm. And just to clarify, the Lily doll was a doll that Ruth Handler, who was um, one of the co-founders of Mattel, had seen when she was traveling on vacation in the late 50s. We went to Europe. We went to Lucerne. We saw a, past a toy store window, and there were a bunch of these dolls dressed in these very European costumes, these European ski costumes. You know, when we saw them, we just loved the way this doll and these windows. So I went in and bought Barbara, one for her and one for me. So what is the streamlined path from that and that context to beloved children's doll in America? I mean, what what is the initial step of, of what was Ruth Handler going for as, as she thought of this idea and how to take that physical doll and turn it into something different? It was kind of bumpy, but it began when she when she took this doll she had found in Germany and planted it in, in the briefcase of another major player, Jack Ryan, um, a Yale-educated engineer who worked on the Sparrow and Hawk missiles and whom Mattel had hired to do engineering work. Anyway, he took it to Japan where he was to find someone to make a copy of it. And each time I would get a half a dozen back, there were nipples on the breasts. And our marketing <laughs> our marketing people were scared to put out a doll with nipples on uh-huh. the breasts. So every time the masters came from Japan, it was, was my duty to take my little fine Swiss file, which they use for working on watches. <laughs> Swiss files are for watch work. And I very daintily filed the nipples off and returned them. And they kept coming back with nipples. So finally, after I'd filed them off several times, they got the idea that they were supposed to make it without nipples. And just hearing someone actually tell that story, you're like, wow, somebody did that. And now Barbie is so part of, like, all of our lives. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it was really, it was really (laughs) extraordinary. (laughs) And the other thing that really makes Ruth such an innovator is that prior to coming across the Lily doll, like the Lily doll is the physical form of uh, the inspiration for Barbie. Mm -hmm. Um, But she had seen that her daughter named Barbara um, was playing with paper dolls. And normally Barbara would pick older dolls. She didn't pick girls who were her age. And prior to Barbie, basically every doll was a baby doll that little girls would pretend to be the mother of. And she had the idea of making a 3D doll that little girls could pretend to be when they grow up, to, to play out adult situations. You put it in such an interesting way in the podcast that this was the very first aspirational doll that was created, something kids could look up to and see themselves as and see this very particular type of adulthood in instead of baby dolls. Yeah, that's totally true. And I think also another thing that was interesting for me putting this together with MG was that Barbie really was like a post-World War II product. Um, There was 
a lot of obviously there was the baby boomers. So like toy companies were really taking off. But also there was like a new understanding that there was um, like a growing adolescence. There was a more more of a time between when kids were kids and then they took on responsibilities of being parents. And it was that time period that's like glamorous time in your life where you're not a kid anymore. You maybe have a couple of dollars in your pocket um, and you don't have that many responsibilities. And there was just a lot of products that were aimed at uh, either teenagers or sort of idolizing teenagers. And that really was sort of a post-World War II uh, phenomenon. Yeah, the invention of, of the teenager as as an entity to whom you could market stuff. And I suppose that was sort of also the message of Barbie. Again, the invented personalities, Barbie versus Lily, were very different. But, um, you know, you had to be the wholesome milkshake drinking girl next door and I search for euphemisms but have the body of a German sex worker. <laughs> MG, you are the best interview I've had today. I just want to say that right now. This is hands down, you win. Congratulations. Antonio, what was the the most interesting thing that you learned about these early days of Barbie doing this podcast? There are so many interesting things. I mean, one thing that since the podcast has come out, my friends have been texting me about um, is just like they didn't realize that it was so crazy to have a doll with boobs. <laughs> and when you think about it, you're like, wow, that is really wild that there was a lot of controversy around that. Um, and then the other thing that just really fascinates me, the sheer amount of market research that went into the doll. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, everything was really thought out. And when you're looking at the doll and all the different iterations, like it really is sort of a composite of of like a lot of different children's desires at the time. So it's very reflective of whatever moment it's in. And that's because so much research went into making these dolls um, and figuring out what actually spoke to little girls. Well, did you see some long lasting marks from that that initial framing and marketing in terms of Barbie over the years? Because, you know, on one hand, you have the career type outfits and things like that. But there has been a persistent criticism over the year that, you know, in the end, Barbie is teaching young girls to be homemakers. Well, we have an amazing quote from Derek Gable, who was a Barbie designer, where he talks about how, you know, Mattel, in a way, wanted to respond to all these criticisms and would do market research and broaden new careers. I mean, everything, doctors, any kind of career, anything outside of fashion, whenever you did a test, 100 percent of the time, the ones that the things that won the test were the fashion, hair play, makeup. And so it really wasn't that Barbie was forcing that on the public. It was basically that that's what little girls wanted to play with. And you can, you know, you're in this business to make money. And there's no point right. in having an office girl there or a doctor if the girl, the kids want to play with boutique. Consistently, little girls wanted more hair play. They wanted to play boutique. That actually is so funny. In the third episode, you'll learn, and we can we can give this little tidbit away, that the most, the highest selling Barbie of all time, still to this day, is totally hair Barbie from, from the early 90s. It just, all kids really wanted was to cut more hair. <laughs> you know. They're like, okay, what if she's a pilot? They're like, no, hair. Like, what if she's a teacher? No, actually, we just really want more hair. Since we're in the 90s now, the, the, the other uh, area of this history I wanted to ask about is can you, you know, obviously Barbie starts out in a very particular body type, a very particular look. And over the years, uh, there have been um, lots of different Barbies. Uh, 
Barbies of color, Barbies with disabilities, uh, Barbies modeled on uh, famous women over the years, an Ida B. Wells Barbie, you know, and so on. C- can you can you retrace some of the ways that these these newer and more diverse Barbies made their way onto the scene, some of those initial decisions? In some ways, Barbie, the Barbie of the 90s was more uh, inclusive than the Barbie of 1959, but not like in a crazy radical way. What I think is really cool about the 90s and what you can sense in reading MG's book is that there was a whole new conversation that was happening about gender as a construct. Mm -hmm. And I think um, you see in the 90s also like earring magic Ken, which a lot of people think is like clearly coded for for gay Ken. Oh, come um, on. He's wearing a lavender vest and has what the manufacturer describes as a ring around his neck. But the columnist Dan Savage suggested it was a different kind of ornament. By the 90s, Barbie was very much a gay icon that a lot of drag queens were using as inspiration. And her as like a camp figure and not to be taken so literally was definitely established and sort of as a way of exploring ideas of gender identity. And I think that's sort of why I think Barbie's been able to have such broad appeal is that by the same token that people who maybe do idolize certain exclusive ideas of beauty standards, other people can skewer them or play with them through using Barbie as like a tool or a toy. Yeah. Um, and I think that she has this like sort of dual purpose. MG, we mentioned at the beginning of the segment that it seems like there, there's a big cultural moment happening here. And I wonder if, if you've given any thought to what the people you were interviewing in the 1990s who were present at the creation would have thought about the idea of people still talking about Barbie and buying Barbies in 2023 and then going to the movie theater to see the big buzzy movie of the summer all about Barbie. Well, I called my book Forever Barbie because I knew that this thing was not going to go away, if only because plastic's not going to degrade in the landfill. But um, <laughs> We have these Barbies for millennia. Yeah, no, but, exactly. But I think what's so exciting about this is that the very first owners of the doll, I mean, what the, the look of the movie is the look of the early 90s Barbies. That fuchsia color, that pink color, the early Barbies were not slathered with pink. This was definitely a 90s thing. And I think it has to do with, you know, Gerwig herself looking back to the period when she would have played with those dolls. We um, we went to Barbie World, which is like an installation in Santa Monica where we saw a bunch of like children today playing with the doll. And it's so interesting because the film is PG-13, so it's aimed at adults. I think it's really tapping into a sense of nostalgia. But those kids are rediscovering Barbie and loving her in the same way previous generations did. So I think there's going to be more movies, more dolls. I don't think the Barbie uh, obsession is going to end anytime soon. That is M.G. Lord and Antonio Serajito, and their new podcast is L.A. Made, The Barbie Tapes. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. You're listening to NPR News. The new album by indie band Palehound, Eye on the Bat, is a visceral and deeply personal journey, says NPR music contributor Marissa LaRusso. She sees this latest album as a move toward honest reflection and says it's their most cohesive record to date. Palehound is the indie rock project of a singer and songwriter named Al Kempner. They make music that I think can be surprisingly vulnerable and emotional, and this latest record is called Eye on the Bat. And it came from a couple kind of intertwined crises in Kempner's life. 
So in early 2020, they had just started touring behind Palehound's last album. They had this huge tour booked across the country. And then of course they had to cancel the entire thing because of the pandemic. And then at the same time, they went through a breakup after a very serious long-term relationship. And they were able to channel those experiences into this really wonderful album, which kind of captures what it feels like to try to push through when it feels like maybe your entire world is about to collapse. Independence Day is probably my favorite track from the album. It is a track that really directly addresses the breakup that Kempner went through. What I love about this song is that it is about losing a connection with someone, but it's also about how that new sense of independence can help you look forward. It's a really propulsive, catchy song, and I feel like it captures that feeling of kind of being caught between the past and the future. I didn't notice I had blood on my hands till it dried and flaked off staining all our clothes. So one thing that really stands out about the lyrics on this record is how visceral they are. There are so many descriptions of bodily sensations on this record. Some of the songs talk about a stomach doing backflips, for example, or having a cold feeling in your throat. There are two different songs that talk about having bloody hands, but that theme really comes through on this song, My Evil. It's my evil. Kemner is singing about being the quote-unquote bad guy in a breakup, and they really personify those feelings as this entity that they say they make love with and share their skull with. I think often when songwriters are covering a difficult time or really big feelings, they sometimes can over-intellectualize that experience. But what I love about these songs is that Kempner really makes you feel what they are feeling. It's like they bring you back into all of these bodily feelings, and so there's no place to hide from how intense these experiences are. I didn't want to see that bloody hand on your stomach that in a song like The Clutch, for example, there's all of this mounting tension that is like building and building. And then in the middle of the song, it all breaks open with this big, glorious guitar solo. And the way that Kempner plays guitar can inject a level of fun and almost playfulness into their sound. And I think that's especially key when the lyrics can cover some otherwise heavy topics like they do on Eye on the Bat. You can really hear Kempner on this record working to kind of find that balance throughout these songs and it really pays off. That was NPR music contributor Marissa LaRusso. Palehound's latest album, Eye on the Bat, is out now. This is NPR News. Thanks for joining us on this rainy, sunny, sunny Sunday, that is, afternoon. Nothing sunny out there right now. We've got some steady rain in Boston. It's 77 degrees right now. The time is 539. Coming up at 6 on 90.9 WBUR, the political group calling itself No Labels is entering the presidential race as a third party. The New Yorker Radio Hour asks what the mysterious group stands for and who's funding it. That's coming up at 6 on 90.9 WBUR. 
Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Innovation Academy in Marlboro. Day and boarding school for grades 6 to 12. Free Innovation Studio Workshop, July 17th, neiacademy.org. I'm Luis Chiavoni with these headlines. Russian President Vladimir Putin says his country has a sufficient stockpile of cluster munitions to deploy in Ukraine. The warning comes in response to the Biden administration's decision to provide the controversial munitions to Kyiv. Fifteen Italian cities are under heat advisories, including Rome, hitting 95 yesterday, 96 today. Tuesday, Rome is expected to see temperatures as high as 107. Other Italian cities could get even hotter. There's a new Wimbledon men's champion today. Carlos Alcaraz defeated Novak Djokovic today in a five-set final. The 20-year-old Alcaraz became the third youngest male champion at Wimbledon. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow, and I am joined yet again by my buddy Rachel Martin for another conversation from her series, Enlighten Me. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Scott. So you remember last week we talked about mindfulness, right? And I wanted to get to the religious roots of that particular faith tradition, so I went to a monastery in New Jersey. I loved hearing about it. That seemed like a really interesting visit. <laughs> it was very cool. Um, you happen to have made a joke about whether or not in this whole mindfulness exploration, did I download a meditation app? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And the answer was no, you went to a monastery instead. That's right, because I'm hardcore like that. <laughs> but the whole thing about the app, like this is the way a lot of people access the idea of mindfulness and start to get into this practice. Yeah. So... Have you tried one? Moment of truth. Many times. Many times. Yeah, many times. And it is always short-lived, to be yeah. fully honest. I have big goals, and I give it a try, and then I find it very hard, or I honestly sometimes fall asleep when, I, when I'm trying. You fall asleep? I either fall asleep or I fidget too much is usually, and then I think, I would like this to work, but it's hard. So the reason that I ask is because one of the most popular apps out there for meditation was actually started by a guy I know, a former colleague of mine named Dan Harris. He used to be this big anchor at ABC News, and he was the guy who would read the intros to my stories when I worked there covering the White House. The major developments tonight, the U.S. has shut down its embassy in Yemen indefinitely after threat of an attack. We start with Rachel Martin, who is in Washington. Rachel, good evening. Good evening, Dan. Administration officials say Yemen is actually... This been TV, Rachel, right there. A little smidge. I do not hear Dan there and think, 
this is a guy who I would think of as a Buddhist spiritual mindfulness leader. I mean. Right. So he has gone through this whole metamorphosis. In 2014, Dan wrote this book called 10% Happier, and it became a New York Times bestseller. And he as a result, made a huge change in his life. He left news altogether, started this mindfulness company. He's got podcasts and he has a meditation app. And I wanted to understand what that shift looked like for him and also how he manages what I think are probably the responsibilities of being a kind of spiritual leader, a kind of person who says, he can make us all 10% happier. Which is a big promise to make. Right. All right, so let's listen to that conversation between you and Dan Harris. Part of your origin story is this moment that you had. You know I've talked about it before, but can you tell me about that day on set when things started to go haywire in your brain? Yeah, I've been dining out on this freakout for a while. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, on the set of Good Morning America in 2004 on a warm June morning, I was filling in for Robin Roberts, who at that point had a job uh, that was described as, I think the title was Newsreader. And mm -hmm. so Robin would come on at the top of uh, each hour of the show, the 7 a.m. hour and the 8 a.m. hour, and read some headlines. Uh, Robin was on assignment somewhere, and I was filling in for her, which I had done many times before, so I didn't have any reason to foresee what was about to happen, which was a few seconds into my spiel. I was, I was supposed to read some headlines off of the teleprompter. Uh, I, my lungs seized up. My heart started to race. My palms got sweaty. My mouth got dry. It became basically impossible for me to speak, which is inconvenient if you're a news anchor. And I had to bail out and toss it back to the main hosts of the show. And it was just terrifying and humiliating. So what changes did that provoke? It's not, a, uh, as I often say, it's not like a neat and tidy story where I had the panic attack and then became a Buddhist and my life has been, you know, all rainbow barfing unicorns since then. That That's not what happened. That's not what happened. Uh, <laughs> no, life is pretty messy usually. Uh, and so for me, what happened was... I made some immediate changes, which one of which was I stopped doing drugs. Part, part of the panic attack was fueled by the fact that after having spent many years in war zones, I very stupidly started to self-medicate with recreational drugs, including cocaine. Mm -hmm. And I learned after I had the panic attack, went to a, I went to a psychiatrist to explain that even though I hadn't been doing drugs that often and I, and I wasn't high on the air, it was enough to change my brain chemistry and make it more likely for somebody who had a pre-existing proclivity for anxiety and panic to have a panic attack. So I, I quit doing drugs. I started seeing a psychiatrist very regularly for many, many years. And then eventually, through a combination of psychotherapy and my beat as a religion reporter, I stumbled upon meditation. And that made a, a really big difference for me. You've spent many years at this point thinking about mindfulness and I don't know it's it's changed yeah. in America I mean it's a it's yes. a huge yes. industry now I think it's is fair to use that word yes as someone at the center of the American mindfulness movement and I think you are is mindfulness the same as 
Buddhism? No. Are you a Buddhist? Yes. You are? <laughs> yes, I'm a Buddhist, uh, and mindfulness is not the same as Buddhism. Um, mindfulness, as it's currently practiced in the West, is, in my opinion, a great thing. There are critiques of the modern mindfulness movement that I actually think have validity, and yet I still think it's a great uh, development, a positive development for the species, frankly. Um, one of the critiques is that uh, in the West, we've taken one of the active ingredients of Buddhism, mindfulness, and pulled it out of its original context, and that that can lead to some misunderstandings. I think that's actually true as far as it goes. Uh, I don't think it should doom the entire enterprise, but it's true. Mindfulness was one of the qualities of mind that the Buddha, a genius who lived 2,600 years ago, talked about to his followers. Um, and you can just kind of understand mindfulness as a, a quality of self-awareness that allows you to see how chaotic your mind is, how cacophonous the mind is, without getting carried away by it. We have this river, this rushing river of thoughts and urges and emotions, but we don't have any visibility into this nonstop cacophony in our minds. And because we don't see it clearly, it just owns us most of the time. And mindfulness is a way to kind of step out of the matrix and to see how uh, wild the mind is, to see the contents of your consciousness so that you don't get um, carried away by it. And that's an incredibly useful thing that the Buddha talked about. And I'm glad that we're practicing it increasingly in the West. And there's all of this evidence to show that meditation or mindfulness meditation techniques have all of these benefits for the brain and the rest of the body and even for our behavior. But that's not the whole Buddhist story. Right. So these things are separate. You can practice mindfulness and not necessarily ascribe or define yourself as an adherent to Buddhism. Absolutely. But what is the difference then? Is mindfulness... Buddhism without the sacrifices that the that the religion mandates? Buddhism is such an interesting thing or not a thing to consider. Um, is Buddhism a religion? Yeah. Is it a philosophy? Yeah. Is it a science of mind? Yeah. It's so many things. And I think what is true uh, is that you can practice parts of it. Hmm. Um, so I'm a Buddhist, but I won't sit here and pound the table and say that enlightenment and rebirth are real because I don't have any evidence. Hmm. And the Buddha was very clear. This is why I think Buddhism appeals to skeptics like me. He was very clear that, look, I'm going to talk about a lot of things. You should not take anything I say at face value. You should come see for yourself. It's actually there. That was the phrase he used um, in, in the language of Pali, which is an ancient Indian language. Ehi pasako. Come see for yourself. Test it out in the lab of your own mind. First of all, it's um, just as someone who's known you from afar for a long time. I mean, you were the anchor guy who read my intros to my weekend Good Morning America stories and nightly news stories. Um, it's, a, it's a big evolution for you, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it's a big change. But I guess I'm interested in the process by which you arrived at this point, because 
when you were first introduced to meditation, um, did it take you a while to to start to identify as a Buddhist? Oh, yeah. Yeah, to make that change from just like, hey, I'm a secular skeptic slash agnostic to, no, I'm I'm a Buddhist. Yeah, I'd still say I'm a secular skeptic in some ways. Mm. In fact, one of my favorite descriptions of Buddhism is it's not a thing to believe in, it's a thing to do. Ah. And so I see Buddhism as a set of practices that help you understand fundamental truths in your bones. And what changed my mind about Buddhism was recognizing that this practice that I was doing, this practice of meditation, was rooted in this ancient tradition that had this incredible intellectual infrastructure around it that took my secular mindfulness and made it just way more interesting. Hmm. Do you think Buddhism works in American culture? One of the hallmarks of Buddhism is that it adapts to any culture it enters. I think that's largely beautiful. And I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this is, in its origin, an Asian tradition. And I think one of the mistakes I think I've made is to get overly focused on the scientists and the Western teachers and to de-emphasize the Asian roots of this practice. And that's a mistake I increasingly, as I, as my career progresses, that I'm trying to rectify because I think it's it's quite easy for white people in, in, in white dominated Buddhist communities to lose sight of the roots of the practice. And I would just say that that's a blind spot that, that should be looked at. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the corporatization of Buddhism in America? I think I lean toward a both end here. Like this is a cliche, but you got to speak to people where they are. I'm interested in what works to make people happier or less miserable, however you want to frame that. And I also think the critiques of the corporatization and um, what's often called mic mindfulness have validity. So it's kind of like they're all, they can all be true at the same time. Um, I can agree with some of the critiques mm -hmm. and also feel that, look, at the end of the day, more mindfulness is better than less mindfulness. And um, I'd rather see this stuff get out there, even if it's not the way I personally would do it. Are you meditating? So, um, it's interesting you should ask. I, I, so I tried right after 10% happier. And, um, and then like most people, I think you try it and then, and then life happens and you don't anymore. And, you know, my excuse forever was that I had this job that I had to get up super early in the morning for. Mm. And if you don't carve out that time in the morning, then the day takes on, you know, ugh, can't do it. Can't find the time. And then there've been different periods, you know, a bad thing will happen to a family member or something. And I've tried to get back into it. Oh, and it it's just, there's a lot of dark stuff sometimes in your head. <laughs> and... It takes real skill, I think. I mean, that's the work, right? Is like sitting with it and then being able to let it go and bring your mind back. It's hard, Dan. I find it very hard. And, I, and I'm someone who's really inclined to... I, I, I'm very spiritually inclined. I really want it to work. I, I, I'm good at taking time out for myself to exercise. I do that every day. 
but I, I've had a really hard time um, sitting with myself. And I don't know. I, it feels like I'm supposed to, but it's hard. No, I mean, look, I, I, I didn't ask that to be to get you to beat yourself up. <laughs> I hear two things in there that I think are really legit. Uh, one is it's hard to find the time. That's just super true. Uh, and the second is that it's hard to do the practice. Even on a good day, it's hard to do meditation because the mind is all over the place. But if you've got something upsetting that's going on in your life, well, it's quite possible you're going to, you know, get a front row seat at the IMAX movie of that if you meditate. (laughs) So so all of that is true. All of that is true. I guess I would just say while validating that, two things. One, uh, as to the time, you know, everything we know about the science of habit formation and human behavior change is that one of the most successful things, one of the most successful strategies is to start very small. So just to aim to do one minute most days or two minutes most days, daily-ish, that can be a really good way to start. And as to the hardness of the practice on two levels, one is, you know, just like how distractible we are and how hard it is to um, to stay on the breath or whatever it is you're meditating on. Um, well, the thing to know is that um, people, when they get distracted, they they often tell themselves a whole story about how they're bad meditators, but it is the waking up from distraction and starting over. That is success. The whole point is to get distracted and start again and again and again, because when you wake up from distraction, you're seeing how wild your mind is. And then when you see, when you get familiar with the chaos of the mind, well, then it doesn't own you as much. That's mindfulness. Thank you, Dan. It's so nice to talk to you. (laughs) It's great to talk to you.